Thanks for joining me, Pete Holterman, for the Credentials Only podcast where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Kelly Wolf, a vice president at Octagon. Kelly's portfolio includes a variety of athletes, but her main focus is tennis. Based in Washington, D.C., this results in some odd hours while the tennis tours traverse the globe. Most people were used to the fact that tournament going on on the other side of the world, you're going to be totally off kilter. So if somebody says, hey, I was up taking care of this till 2.30 in the morning and you text somebody and you say, I'm going to come in at 10.30 instead of 9 o'clock, it's not the end of the world. But I will argue that about three o'clock in the afternoon, it's nap time. Part of the reason for those long hours is the very hands-on nature of working with tennis clients. For a tennis player, we're there, you know, we're their front office. So if you're a basketball player or football player, hockey, you have somebody out there who's doing your travel, who's had had a player relations, who's, you know, getting you those, who's helping manage all your uh, interview requests, your PR, you know, doing anything that, that helps you to be better advocate for that particular team. So we're the advocate for each particular client. Whether in her work with the tennis player or in marketing relationships with other clients, finding the right sponsorship opportunities is a very important piece of her work. You can do your due diligence and you can find a CMO or a brand manager who happens to have an affinity for a particular sport. Then you're actually in better waters than you are of just trying to cold call people because it's, it's really quite difficult from time to time to do that. Kelly shares a great deal about all the facets of her work and sums up what she feels is one of the keys to success in the athlete representation business. I, don't feel, I think if you don't have a passion for it, then you shouldn't really be doing it. It's a commitment of time and it's a commitment of emotion and all those things that go along with that. While you listen, visit credentialsonly.com for more information about many things we'll discuss and to sign up for our mailing list to get notified when we have a new episode. If you're liking what you're hearing, take a moment. Please leave a rating or review wherever you're listening. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Octagon Vice President Kelly Wolf. Kelly, thanks so much for joining me. I want to start at your start. How did you get into this business? Must you ask me that question, Pete Holterman? Um, I, <laughs> okay, so as I tell everybody, this doesn't really exist anymore. Um, I answered an ad in the Washington Post when there were still job ads in the Washington Post. I think there are, but I never look anymore. Um, and it was just, you know, right out of college. It at the time list, you know, it was so different. Sports marketing was very small. It was more like a law firm. Um, and it was listed as an admin position and just said, I think I can remember it just said, uh, in sports marketing call 202-333-3838, which used to be our old number when we were downtown in DC. That was it. Nothing else. That's the ad I answered. Um, and so, and then I, it took many weeks to then, uh, start working for Mr. Tom Ross, uh, who, you know, well, um, and because it was the beginning of basically pretty much the sports marketing industry, I mean, it, we were Advantage International then, not Octagon. Um, and it was primarily tennis, basketball, golf, and Olympic swimming. And so I, I was immense tennis. And tennis was divided, tennis has always still been divided in our group. So I was in the men's side. And then it just evolved over time. Evolved to 
now your vice president working still in tennis at Octagon, doing some other things. We'll get into that. But what was that trajectory like for you to go from admin assistant to vice president? Uh, difficult and frustrating at moments, but actually probably, you know, not as if you go back and you look on it, maybe not so much. Uh, the first, I'd say like 18 months, there was another woman. There was a woman who was in women's tennis working for Phil Picciotto. And so we both got promoted like a little over a year after we each were there. We were the first coordinators of divisions and still to this day, they kind of exist. They do exist. And, um, so it was that. And then, you know, thing, when I started traveling, I think things took off more, you know, you ended up just taking on more different, different, different stages of different things. If you wanted to take work on, there was work to take on. So you became like a manager or a senior manager or, you know, however it, you wanted it to evolve into being. But I think I did a lot of financial work for a time, like helping with budgets and things in addition to trying to, you know, bring everybody in a, in a worldwide division together to kind of have some semblance of continuity as to how we were all approaching our clients who were also, you know, inter, you know on an international basis. And then um, I would say probably in late 1990s or so, maybe uh, 2000, when about the time Robbie, I signed Robbie and, you know, and then um, Leighton was really, you know, basically kind of all taking off. That's when my whole universe really changed. And I think it was 2002. I think I traveled 20 some weeks. I was kind of like you, but I really wasn't prepared for that. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd say that's really when things really took off a little bit differently. And Octagon now it had, you said you were getting in kind of when sports marketing was taking off. Octagon now is, is a massive international operation. How big and how many divisions? What's that corporate structure like? So two sides to the company. Our side, which is talent and properties, has, um, you know, we have everything from tennis to basketball to ice hockey, soccer, Olympics. You know, there's everything golf, everything in between. And then there is the other side, which is doing corporate sports marketing activation. Um, and they're pretty, and we all, we also have some golf events too, that we own in addition to the tennis events. So the, or in the United States, at least the golf events have offices in little different, you know, areas around the world, around the States, whether it's like Naples, Florida or Bentonville or, you know, outside in Arkansas, we run a, a golf event, a senior PGA event, um, down there. So, uh, they're different ones. I mean, we have, I uh, did this the other day. I think we have 80 offices around the world now. Holy um, cow. Yeah. And it's a lot. Um, when you take and you add everything together and then we were purchased by the Interpublic group back in 1995, 96, 95, I think. Um, and so at the time, we were purchased, they were just ad agencies and PR agencies, and um, they wanted to get into sports marketing. So they bought us and several other small companies and integrated us eventually together under the Octagon brand. So that's all changed. And you touch many different pieces of that, but the core of what you do is athlete representation and outside perception. Ad agents just go out there and they make deals. But how would you describe your role? Well, we don't like to use the agent word <laughs> because we feel that uh, it's a little too transactional. 
So we prefer to use client managers, you know, what you want to say, because honestly, I think once you go out and you sign somebody and then um, you do those endemic deals within any sport, then everything else is about managing a career until somebody see where their career actually goes. And if there's, you know, non-endemic deals to do, or there's bigger endemic deals to do, but it's all about managing time and expectations and schedules and people and, you know, all, all those, you know, all those different bits and pieces. So, and I'd say, you know, as you probably well know from everything that Octagon does, you know, we always like to say we're the Octagon family. Um, and so everybody looks at it. It's an, you know, it's an investment in time. It's, it, it, we all kind of get in it and that's what we do. It just kind of takes over your life really. Tennis is unique in a lot of ways compared to traditional team sports, but I would imagine that managing a client who is a tennis player is different than someone who's on a baseball team or a basketball team. How do you view those differences? Well, I'd say I could use the best comparison from doing tennis to going and help, you know, cause I work with uh, Jimmy Johnson, NASCAR driver. So that's somewhat of a team, even though he's an, and you would say he's a driver and individual athlete, it's still a team sport in NASCAR, but you, for a tennis player, we're there, you know, we're their front office. So if you're a basketball player or football player, hockey, you have somebody out there who's doing your travel, who's had had a player relations, who's, you know, getting you those, who's helping manage all your uh, interview requests, your PR, you know, doing anything that, that helps you to be a better advocate for that particular team. So we're the advocate for each particular client. So we're part of their team. So it's, it's a, there's a lot more to do, I would say, day to day in terms of that type of minute, you know, detail oriented work. And I want to get into the weeds on a little bit of that. But the first thing that is something you contend with working in tennis is that international aspect of it. And you mentioned Robbie Ginepri earlier. Currently, you're with Francis Tiafo, Michael Chang and Todd Martin over the years. And they're Americans. You're in America. But you have worked with athletes from overseas, David Goffin from Belgium, Leighton Hewitt, you mentioned from Australia, their markets are different. Their media markets, their sponsorship markets are different. How do you approach learning that home market for some of these athletes that you've worked with? Well, I think we were like in the days of the many Australian players. I mean, there was, you know, the Woodies, Jason Stoltenberg, Leighton, Mark Philippousis, um, we had a very active office in Melbourne that was dedicated toward individual athletes. Um, and now we only have an office, we have an office in Sydney that is more dedicated toward sports sponsorship. Um, so then we were, the best way to do it is if you have a team or a person who is in that particular country or that particular region, who actually can be the person who's on the ground, right? Who knows more, who's, you know, we know about here, I'd say, I know, I don't know Australia as well as I used to, but I would say that you, when you go out and you look at those things, you need somebody who knows what the culture is, who knows what happens in society, who listens to the radio every day or watches the local news or does those types of things, because there could be something that comes up that potentially is an opening to have your athlete be in a different publication uh, or an opening for a potential endorsement deal, but it's impossible for one person sitting, 
even in even in today's extremely interconnected world, you you just unless you live in that space, you're just not going to know enough about what it is that makes everything tick and run. So for us, I think that's one of the advantages to having so many offices around the world now today. Um, and you know, I mean, in different in and you know, we're lucky because in tennis we have. Um, 14 tennis events, 14, no, 16 tennis events around the world, four men's and uh, four men's, 11 women's now. And so that almost counts as an office, right? Because even if it's just, you know, four people that are full time uh, and, you know, we lease those, whether we're leasing those events out or we have people who know what's going on. So we know what the local market can bring and what the interest is because of the sponsorships associated with the tournament. You talked about being that front office and I actually have been talking to a tennis player about appearing on this podcast and her response was, yeah, you're right. I am basically CEO of my own company. I've got this whole operation around me going out and hitting a ball over a net. Um, And so in your role of working with those tennis players, you're intricately involved in executing a lot of this and even coming up with the planning. And I think the first thing that I want to talk a little bit more about is getting that team together and how much do you wind up being involved with? And and it's interesting because usually the general manager on a traditional team is finding the coaches and finding the front office staff and finding the players. Well, now the player is in the position of finding that coach and finding that physio and finding that chiropractor or whomever else is traveling with them. How much do you play a part in assembling that team for a player? Uh, I'd say a great deal. I mean, it differs from player to player. So if you're having somebody come on who's fairly young, you know, and you sign them, having 17, 18 years old, they're probably, leave, you know, leaving what is traditionally, you know, been, a, I don't want to say a junior coach, sometimes a local coach, um, somebody they've pretty much known all their national coach, you know, somebody that they've known all their lives. And as they progress there, you need to figure, you need to know what makes that player tick, because if they want to then bring on a full-time coach or share a coach with somebody, the personalities have to mesh in some manner, shape or form. Right. So, or if you have somebody who's been out there for a couple of years and it's time to change coaches and you, and you know what it is that makes it work or what they maybe over time, just, you know, people traveling around the world together for two or three years, you know, and there are unique situations where, you know, players and coaches have been together for entire careers, but I'd say it's mostly, you know, three years probably. And then, I think people start to think about changing because it's a lot of time together, but what works, what didn't work or what didn't go right toward the end of that relationship, because that's really what's going to be the most in a player's mind. And I think on a, so our job would be to go out, see who we could, you know, find, suggest, like maybe interview a little bit in advance and say, do you want to be out on the road? Can you be out on the road? That's the biggest thing. Can you be out on the road for 30, 35 weeks a year? Uh, if you're with a federation, do you want to leave? Do you want to go on? Do you want to take a chance, right? And become a private coach. Um, and I think for a physio, it's more, again, understanding it's, in my there. if you're a top player, you probably have a physio with you every single week. If you're somebody who's, you know, ranked somewhere in the top, I don't know, 30 to 100, you may have a physio out there 20 some weeks a year. So that covers you those grand slam weeks, a couple weeks before master series weeks, you know, or um, for the men's side. And so you just have to find the right people that 
everybody kind of gels and the player feels like they're getting the right bit and piece from each individual person for them. It's unique as well because you're not handed a schedule from the league office. There's a calendar of opportunities to play, but ultimately the player has to decide where to go. And they're doing that in concert with their whole team. What's your involvement in those decisions as a player figures out what tournaments to play? Um, I would probably say I'm probably a little bit more proactive than most people than are about scheduling. Uh, because I think, I think over time, over the last several years, there's too many players who are out on the road too many weeks. You get a lot of injuries. People are chasing points, which is not a way to plan a schedule. Um, I also think that if you, and you're in a situation where there's a coach going back to your CEO. Okay. So a tennis player is hiring a coach to tell them what to do, but that person can also fire them if they don't like what they're telling them they can do. Right. So, um, so it's trying to make sure that everybody feels like they have an equitable voice or to say, um, if it's a top player and a tournament really wants a particular player to come to that event is to make sure the player knows about it. And then if you really want to go, then working with, so it's a, it's a monetary function at some point. Um, if you, if the player wants to go to that particular event, then you actually then work with a coach to figure out how do we make all this come together? So that somebody's not out there for five, six weeks of the year. Um, I also think that um, this year, you know, I mean, this has been extremely challenging, you know, yeah. with trying to figure out where are people going to go and, and, you know, Europe being was, you know, difficult. Uh, so like Francis, for example, has gone to South America for the first time in his pro career. So, and, and so, you know, how did we balance, do you really want to go the week right after Australia? Do you just want to go two weeks? You know, what, you know, what do you want to do? Those are all discussions to have. And also at some point, if a player doesn't like what a coach is saying and they tell you one thing, then you kind of have to figure out how to balance it all without making some, making that coach feel like you're, you know, you're putting the extra weight on them to do what the player thinks is right versus what the coach thinks is right. So it's just, it's a little bit of a balancing act. The travel component is a unique beast. Um, and, and as you said, there isn't a, a team charter that they're getting on uh, 2021, 2020 are their own unique yep. beasts, but you know, in, in 2019 and, and, and regular times, for a tennis player, they lose the event. They're moving on pretty quickly to the next city or finding someplace to go for a few days. It's a lot of last minute tickets. What is that particular headache like? And I'm calling it a headache just because I have to imagine it's really complicated. It's actually, I would say it's easier now than it was 15 years ago because then you, you know, it's different airline industry totally changed, right? Because all of a sudden, you know, in the day you're booking round trip airline tickets because it was least expensive to do. And people were then trying to manipulate the system a bit more. And then now it's, or before this particular year, um, it's been, you know, you can do a lot of one-way tickets ex except for the countries where somebody has to have a departure ticket <laughs> to someplace. So there are particular times you're just going to pick a date so that somebody, you know, has it. And then you can go back and you can, 
you know, cancel the ticket and reuse it or do whatever. But um, it, it's from that standpoint, I think it's easier from the standpoint of, of trying to make sure when you have three or four different people who are traveling on a team and making sure that they're all, they're coming, some can be coming from different places and they get there at the same time. That's a little bit of a juggling act. And I think, um, and everybody has miles on a different airline for heaven's sake. So I'm like, okay, everybody needs to pick an airline or accept the fact that you're going to just get all seven different airline numbers. But um, so that, that has, you know, that that's kind of interesting sometimes because people, I would never be willing to take a connection if I could take a nonstop. Right. And then people who really want those miles, I'm like, okay, well, if it snows or it storms or this is August in the United States, what do you think you're doing? (laughs) So how much of it is last minute? I mean, our players, if they lose an 11 a.m. match, are they sometimes like, can I fly out tonight or? Yes. Yes. Yes, they do. Um, I think many of them have gotten over it um, more so as they get they get. I say, is there more seasons in their careers where they don't feel like they just need to leave Dodge because, you know, they had a bad match or, or something like that. But yeah, I mean, but, but again, I don't have to use a travel agent. We used to ever use a travel agent. I feel bad travel agents, you know, they're only working for people who are really gone on vacations and holidays now who don't know the industry very well, but um, you know, we can go online and pretty much find everything that we absolutely positively need. Um, sometimes it's not easy. Um, Miami is like the worst place in the universe, even in a regular time to get an onset flight to Washington anymore. Um, but I would say that, you know, it, it, it's become simpler. And I think, you know, with the way flights, well, not now, but normally are, you can, you can get out somehow if you really want to, but it does make you have to be around available all the time. Because if a match ends at eight o'clock, at night and somebody wants to leave at nine o'clock tomorrow morning, you're on your computer or your phone until probably 10 or 11 o'clock at night trying to solve that problem. <laughs> that was a, a, one of the questions I definitely wanted to ask you about because you're saying eight o'clock at night, they're losing that match. Well, if it's eight o'clock at night and that match just took place in Melbourne, Australia, and you're sitting in Washington, DC, that eight o'clock at night is two in your morning. Yes. How in the world... <laughs> do you do this? Because tennis, the number of times they're playing on this continent is a handful out of that 20 plus week schedule they're playing. Well, I think like some of it's a little bit, I don't know, is, I guess you would ask that question. You can ask that question later, but a little bit cheating is that if, even if you think somebody's going to win, anything can happen, right? So what is, what's the option, right? I, I've learned that over time. I don't wait. I don't sit here and think like I'm Mary Sunshine anymore and oh, so-and-so is going to win and not figure out and then it creates too much drama, right? Is, is what is the option, right? And then I think also um, is some of that since last fall has been taken away because of COVID testing, right? <laughs> right? People have to have, if, if, if you're lucky and you're at a tournament and even tested the day before, then you probably you're fine, right? To travel the next day. Um, but it is because I, and I've been woken up in the middle of the night, many, 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 many times, right. To say by somebody who's disappointed at losing, or if I haven't stayed up to watch match the whole time, I'm probably for sure going to wake up at some point and check my phone. 
right? And then I know what's going on. But it is, you don't, like, just like we were talking about before, Australia, I mean, that's the reason you're not, I mean, you were, had to be available for television all the time. For me, it's just being, hey, if somebody does lose or does need something, you know, I'm going to wake up, I may text somebody. It's just in your mind, you, you know, you're just not resting because you're just worried about it. That's all. How do you then keep yourself sane? Because that, that means interrupted sleep most of your year because there yeah. aren't that many events happening exactly. in your time zone. It, um, it does. Um, I think even if we were in the office now, um, most people were used to the fact that tournament going on on the other side of the world, you're going to be a, a totally off kilter. So we're very lucky in that um, if somebody, know, you know, you're, you're working, it's not like you're out partying all night, right? And so if somebody says, hey, I was up taking care of this till 2.30 in the morning and you text somebody and you say, I'm going to come in at 10.30 instead of 9 o'clock, it's not the end of the world. But I will argue that about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it's nap time right? <laughs> From that 7am to 9am Australia time, you just, it, and then you do it. And then you, of course you can't go to sleep. Right. So, so it's, it, it's just balancing and somewhere in your brain. I think you just tell yourself it's two weeks. I can do it for, well, this time it was five weeks, but you know, it's, it's just, you, you just figure out how to do it when you're not there. So it's the advantage to being there too, right? This, is that it takes, even though you're jet lagged, it seems you just push through, you just do it. Another complication with being a, a global sport is playing in all these different countries brings in all kinds of different tax laws. Are, is this on your plate to figure out what they owe in different countries and withholdings? And no, no, thank God. Um, in our, okay, so the part of Octagon, we do have a wealth management group. It's a separate company. Uh, I'd say a lot of, um, for tennis players, I'd say a lot of them actually do, we, they utilize it. It's not a requirement to be a client, right? Some people might have an accountant someplace else. We do have um, three people that, four people, well, depends on if it's this time of year, there's four people doing it, um, who are responsible for filing taxes. And they, over time, the, the guy who runs that particular group, he's been here quite a long time. So he's developed relationships with the French tax authorities, with UK, you know, inland revenue. Australia is easy because you file it yourself. Um, they, they have a lot of our international clients use them because here in the States, not only are you worried about federal tax, they have to go file in every state where they play, right? So our job would be to help them because nowadays, especially in the United States, they, they want every single piece of paperwork. They just don't take it off of people's credit card statements anymore like they used to. There's the business component of this as well. Uh, tennis players typically have deals with a lot of tennis brands, whether it's the rackets, the clothing manufacturers, strings, grips, other bits of tennis gear that's a group that you probably know very well. Those deals though are very important to that player because that's the gear they're going to play with. How important are those to the player that, that you're getting those deals right so that they're comfortable with what they're playing in and with? Um, I think when it comes to clothes and shoes, most players, I don't know, I would argue that most manufacturers now, everybody has using kind of like the same fabric to make clothes. You know, we all have the dry fits, you know, using a Nike terminology there. 
Um, it's the shoes that really are important for people. Um, so I think if they're not comfortable with a shoe or a shoe doesn't hold up as well, that's, that's a problem, right, for them. Um, but I think most people are happy if it's a major manufacturer, you're not going to, which is primarily what tennis is all about nowadays. So you're not really going to find anything that's too that much variant. But if, if somebody wants to, let's say you're, negoti you're negotiating somebody's clothing and shoe deal and you want to take them to market, the biggest question that that player is going to, I need to try the shoes. Because if the shoes don't feel comfortable or the shoes don't work or the fit's not quite right, then they might take a deal, which is less money because they're happier with their, you know, with that particular part of the equipment. Then I think also in that component, there's things of, do, are people happy to be one of many, like with Nike and Adidas, or are they happy to be one of few, like Fila or Asics, right? Those are the probably best comparisons. Rackets are a whole different world. I had this conversation with somebody a couple of days ago saying, look, it doesn't matter what the racket manufacturer if you like a racket, all I want to know is we're going to have rackets sent to you. You're going to hit, hit with them. I'm not going to tell you a, anything about a particular deal, not a monetary part of a deal to you come back to me and you tell me what is the best racket that is for you to play with. What makes you feel the most confident so that you can go earn more prize money and win more rounds and make more bonuses and earn more money. Right? So it doesn't matter if somebody wants to pay you $100,000 to use your racket and somebody else wants to pay you $100 to use your racket. If the $100 racket is better for you than the $100,000 racket, then it's, there's no question. It doesn't matter. So, but I think um, that that player has to have such, your tennis racket is your tool of your trade. So you have to have the utmost confidence in your racket and your string in order to feel like you're going to be a success. Does that strain those negotiations? Because I, I would think then if, if you're the racket company, you got to feel pretty good of like, hey, you've had great success with our product for years. So it's not like you're going to walk away from us. Does that give them extra leverage or is there kind of an understanding of the success is mutually beneficial? I think some of the success is mutually beneficial, but I have to tell you, there's certain racket brands out there who don't pay top dollar compared to other ones because they think, and they're probably right, that their equipment is actually the best that's out there. So, and there are others who maybe have come into the game in the last couple of years who are willing to pay more because they need to get somebody who's in that top hundred, who's going to play playing those grand slams to get them that exposure. And it's all a gamble, give or take. Right. Um, so they are willing to pay. They are willing to pay more money. String is an issue because, you know, there was people use gut forever and then they went to all synthetic. Now most people are back to a hybrid, which makes the most sense. Um, so it's just making sure that they feel it's expensive, especially when somebody all of a sudden goes old school, which is really probably the best way to do it. And after every match cuts their strings out of their brackets, right? Because they want fresh strings all the time. It's super expensive. If you don't have somebody who's supplying you with that stuff. So Makes a difference. How do you go about finding the off-court opportunities for players? Um, we actually have a questionnaire when somebody signs as a client that we have had for for as long as I can remember. Um, asking them particular questions, like more about their hometown, so that we have all things covered, like brothers, sisters, you know, favorite music, um, 
favorite food? You know, what do you use? What do you use? Like what toothpaste do you use? You know, what, what razor blades do you use? What shampoo, what all that type of different thing. And, um, and so we'll use that sometimes as a, as a basis, right? But especially in a particular market to go out and see if we can find like the right endorsement. But I will tell you, sometimes it just kind of falls in your lap, which is super spectacular because you don't even wonder how you got there, but you have a deal. So it's fine. We're just going to keep on moving ahead. We just don't really care, right? Because um, I had a colleague who um, is primarily doing sales and she had tried to ingratiate herself into this company for a really long time here in the Washington area. And, um, and she also teaches um, kind of like, you know, she does like yoga classes and she, she's an instructor. So she happened to be teaching a class in the building where the company was. It wasn't planned that way. It's just she, whatever company she was working for kind of just plopped her in this one place. Lo and behold, somebody who worked for the company that she'd been trying to talk to came into the class and happened to be the only person to show up that day. So they ended up talking, they ended up doing whatever yoga or whatever it was for like 15 minutes and then went and had a coffee and we got a deal out of it. That those things don't, you can't, that that's like a that's like a Hollywood movie you can script, right? <laughs> that you, those things just don't happen otherwise, right? So um, so it's just those are the kinds of things that are unique and you it's really hard. And honestly, because if you can do your due diligence and you can find a CMO or a brand manager who happens to have an affinity for a particular sport, then, then you're, you're actually in better waters than you are of just trying to cold call people because it's, it's really quite difficult from time to time to do that. I won't press you for gory details, but I will welcome as many details as you care to give on this question. But what then is the business model for you in that relationship with your client when they do get deals and even prize money? Does that trickle down to, to the client manager at all? No. Um, well, it never trickles to the client manager. It only trickles to the agency. <laughs> so um, unless, of course, you're a one-man job. But um, uh in ancient times, uh, prize money, they, there were the agencies, whether it was Advantage or ProServe or IMG, they did take percentage of prize money. And that percentage of prize money was meant to cover your day-to-day -day services. And then your percentage on any endorsement deal that you did was meant to be the fee for, you know, finding, negotiating, doing the contract work and managing that particular deal. I don't know, I've lost track. I wanna say maybe 12, 15 years ago, another one, a competitor decided to do away with the prize money fee in order to sign some clients that was extremely competitive. And once that happened, it was, everything just was like kind of like a waterfall. And so everybody else had to do the same thing or nobody would have signed anybody. And that prize, the fee that people pay on endorsements, it's pretty much straightforward unless somebody really, um, once somebody starts, I'd say, you know, gets in the top 20, top 15, top five, right? Number one player in the world. That changes. The, that changes your fee structure significantly. Um, and if you're smart about it, you do it before the player asks for it to be done because it's a better way to manage the situation to say, hey, we realize, you know, this is where you are. You have 
more income. Obviously, we're all earning more money. We're doing more work, but we need to be fair to everybody. Um, and in that fairness, this is what we would suggest to do. That's usually the best way to handle it. How do you go about finding those players? And you mentioned earlier, sometimes you're signing them when they're really young, 17, 18. So is this a lot of prospecting of, oh, I think they're going to be really good at the sport? Or are you waiting to see some established results before you go try to sign someone? So, so we actually have, because, because there's so many more players now, right? I mean, tennis used to be about the United States or Australia or, you know, Europe as a whole, right? And so now um, we actually have a group of within, so there are 15 people who work in tennis at Octagon um, full-time. And I'd say there are three or four of them and their sole responsibility, one of their responsibilities is to gather as much information as we can on juniors around the world. Like you can go and you can look at the ITF junior rankings when they're actually playing. Um, you, we send people to junior tournaments, whether that's Petit Us or, you know, your all the Grand Slam juniors, Orange Bowl, Easter Bowl, you know, all that type, you know, anything that's pretty much out there. Um, and somebody can rise to the top who you would never expect. Um, our competitors are all doing the same thing, right? So it becomes really difficult. Um, but you're kind of looking at like who who has potential. It's it's a game, right? I mean, it's I would argue it's easier in the women's tennis than it is in men's because they just seem to, you know, come into their own at an earlier age than than especially now the men's tennis players do. But um, you know, you're taking a gamble. Like if they're two good French players, if we pick one and somebody another agency gets the other you know, who knows which ones really, it could be the guy who's lower ranked as a junior than the guy who's higher ranked as a junior. Right. Um, but that's really where we go, where you go, you might know coach each, I'd say everybody in each country, you know, the national coaches, they know who's coming through. They know what's going on. Um, we all have developed different relationships with them. They may call and say this particular person, they are not really sure if they're going to go to college or not in the United States. Right. Um, and, I think you should have a conversation with them, right? Because I know that somebody else has approached them. So that's always a nice thing to have as somebody who, um, and that helps with older clients, people who've been clients when they played or still are clients and their coaches, you know, they're your best, they're your best advocates out there by far, by far. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, you get some and you lose some, but I don't know, even if you lose some, I think all the, everybody is involved in tennis in the, is the bigger agencies, I would say. Um, we all do comparable jobs, right? No, or you wouldn't be in the business, right? Or you wouldn't, it wouldn't be competitive to sign somebody. But I would argue that we're all like different personalities, right? We are more the boutique shop that happens to have 80 offices around the world. Um, but at the end of the day, if somebody is not happy with one agency and people know that and wants to move, they'll end up with, I would say 90% of the time, they're going to end up exactly where they should be for the majority of their career with the right agency. And because it's about the people, it's, you know, we, we all do work and we all can do it in a little bit different ways, but, you know, it's a very finite world in which we're, we're operating. So that's the biggest difference, I would say. When you do 
get that person signed and you begin working with them, you two things you, you've mentioned so far are the investment of time and the Octagon family. Mm-hmm. How much are you then riding the highs and lows as these players go on their career and, and have great wins and terrible losses or injuries? Is it a true roller coaster ride that you're, you're just strapping in for that as they go through everything? When I'm sitting in my office and I'm yelling at the match I'm watching on television or the scoreboard and people down the hall are going, what is going on in your office? (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah. I'd still say if you have that passion, right. Where people are, you know, you're watching and it is an investment, but I think it's an investment in it's all emotion, right. But it's um, sports emotion. So, but at the same time, I think, over the long haul, I've learned how to balance it a little bit better, not to be as disappointed or not to have as much expectation of people, because I think the competitive level of tennis is totally, I don't know. I think it's so much more equalized. Even if, if you took out Roger in men's side, if you took out Roger, Rafa and Novak, it's a pretty equal playing field right amongst the top 50, top 75 guys. Right. In the women's side, it's obviously really equal considering 19 people have, <laughs> you know, right, the last 19 grand slams or whatever. But um, so I think that's different. It's not like the days where there was, you know, you had five or six people who were going to go out there and really win everything, or you were guaranteed you were going to get to the quarters or the semis every single week, just because you were so much better than the rest of the field. So, um, but yeah, if it's not, I don't feel, I think if you don't have a passion for it, then you shouldn't really be doing it, right? Because you can't, I don't know, I guess, I don't know, well, I've been doing this for too long, but I think if you don't, if you don't recognize what's important or what it takes to get to a particular sport, it doesn't matter if it's tennis or basketball, right? Um, and you don't appreciate what that athlete or that client has done, then I'm not really sure you're the right person for that athlete, or maybe you're just not in the right job, or maybe it just takes up too much of your time. But this, um, our financial services guys like to say you athletes earn their wealth pretty much in a, well, if you're a football player, it's three years, but if you're, you know, most other sports, it's probably over a 10 to 15 year span time span. Whereas you or I are working, you know, whatever, 50 years. Right. (laughs) So so the thing is, is that if you, this is a short period of time and everything has to go well for it to be a good income so that you can then live your life or figure out whatever the job is you want to do after or whatever foundation you want to run after, right? Do all those different things. So I think it's, it's a commitment of, it's a commitment of time and it's a commitment of emotion and all those things that go along with that. How do you handle it when two of the players you work with have to play each other? Uh, if it's the U.S. Open, I go sit in the luxury suite where allegedly nobody can see me. <laughs> uh, I've been known to sit on my hands so I don't clap mistakenly for the wrong person, for anybody, not for the wrong person, but for anybody, right? Um, if I'm, a, you know, like, I did that once in Miami in a qualifying match. I think Jared was playing, Jared Donaldson was playing Stefan Kozlov and it was on a court that didn't have a lot of seats. And I found the corner up in like 
the very corner and I just sat there and I didn't tell everybody to stay away from me. And I just like, I, I just looked at my phone most of the time and looked up at the scoreboard, but yeah, one time at the U S open, um, Todd Martin played Michael Chang. That was a killer or Todd Robbie, I think was another one that was a killer. Um, and I, you know, it was just too, too difficult, you know, to watch. So <laughs> it's fine. It was fine. Those are tough days at the office. Yes, but they're good days. Somebody's going to win. So. Somebody's going to win. That's true. So you, you mentioned a little bit that there's more to what Octagon does beyond just working with the athletes. And I actually saw a, a story from a couple of years ago that you Octagon had 21 players in the U.S. Open and 19 staff in New York. What else are you guys doing besides working with those athletes? Uh. Probably because, okay, so part of it is um, at U.S. Open or we kind of pretty much kept it to U.S. Open in Wimbledon is you're trying to bring, we try to bring all the staff together at least twice a year. So if we have an annual meeting, it helps. If we don't, those are the two venues where we just bring people, everybody who's there. Um, that could be salespeople that could that probably include our financial services group because they have, we have at least three or four of them who come. Um, and then you, we would have people who are probably in and out, you know, for a couple of days, but you know, look, there's recruiting going on. There's meeting with manufacturers that are going on. There might be different ways to find other business. There might be, um, especially the U S open because of our luxury suite, they're stopped there. And, um, we may have got, I may have gotten somebody a credential because they just need to be there because they're entertaining for another you know, another sport, for example, mm -hmm. um, especially, you know, that happens with our salespeople. A couple of years ago, we did have three or four of them, you know, it's a close trip from DC to go to New York anyway. So, um, but there are that. Yeah. But I mean, yes, there's probably a time period where we had more staff than we had, you know, top clients, I would say, but I don't know. I don't remember it being that bad of only having 21 clients in a tournament to have a grand slam. At least I hope not. So. And, and that hospitality function, is certainly an important part of what you do. That's also something you help facilitate. You mentioned having more than a dozen tournaments. What is the benefit on that player representation piece of having tournaments as part of that octagon umbrella? Uh, obviously on the women's side, it's much more than on the men's, but I would, it's because there's just more tournaments, but part of it is too, of um, there's two things. There's um, being involved um, in the basically on I don't want to say the other side of the sport, but there's the player side and there's the tournament side. So we're able to have knowledge about both. And then that you can come back and that helps a player on scheduling or figuring out different things to do. Um, you know, we do it. IMG is on some tournaments. They do the same thing. Sometimes maybe because of those tournaments, you can, you know, it's easier to secure a wild card for a younger player. So that helps. Um, we try to play it more of out of like the informational viewpoint that, you know, we can bring more things to the table that help our clients or we, you know, just, just the, what we're able to do, or we hope that we have more clout in the sport itself because we're well-balanced between player side, tournament side is, is how we kind of look at it. Stepping away from tennis, you mentioned Jimmy Johnson. Um, I think you've worked a little bit with Chad Knauss as well and Julia Landauer. So in motorsports, how do those people in motorsports treat sponsorship differently? 
That's a nightmare. Uh, <laughs> so it's a nightmare. So um, especially with Jimmy. Okay, so you figure you have seven-time NASCAR champion, right? Probably the greatest driver for sure of this generation of drivers in the last 25 years. Um, but because NASCAR encompasses so many sponsors, like if it's an umbrella sponsor or it's a team sponsor, then the drivers aren't really allowed to kind of go against that wave because they don't, the sport and the sport in NASCAR is very um, family oriented. So, um, so that's a huge challenge because that takes away a lot of potential, you know, individual sponsor deals, which is what we're responsible for. Um, Jimmy's moving from NASCAR to IndyCar. It's not as pervasive in IndyCar. They're a little bit more open to understanding or saying, hey, if we have this particular team sponsor, you don't have to use that watch or that, you know, whatever radio or whatever television set or do whatever. You don't, you don't have to do that. Whereas in NASCAR, it would be, it's pretty much more locked down to do it. Um, I think uh, after last year, NASCAR's totally you know, totally changed in terms of viewpoint of a lot of different players. We also have, we represent, you know, Brad Doherty, he's played for the Cleveland Cavaliers and he's been a minority owner in, our, in a NASCAR team for since the eighties. Um, and I, and I feel most recently that that was um, overshadowed when Michael Jordan came in with Denny Hamlin to, you know, and they brought Bubba Wallace on and stuff. So I think I'm a little oversensitive to what Brad's done versus, you know, it being flash news, I guess. Um, but somebody like Michael Jordan coming into the sport obviously causes all kinds of different things to happen. Now we have Pit Bull who wants to, you know, has, wants to be involved in a team. Um, but it, it's more motorsports in of itself is really difficult in Julia's case as you know, there's, there are more female drivers than there have been in the past, but they're all the lower levels. You, I think there's two women who are maybe driving truck series. I bet you've never watched a truck series race. Um, and I actually, I did watch it from Daytona a couple of weeks ago. Oh, you did. And okay. Haley had it in car camera. I remember from the race. Yes. 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 <laughs> so she's probably the one that's she's at the highest. Julia is actually hoping maybe by next year she can run in truck, but, um, but she raced this past summer in NASCAR. Uh, they have a Euro NASCAR series, which is extremely popular over there. Uh, they're just much smaller, shorter races. So, um, and they're very regionalized and stuff for television and they're all on YouTube. But um, so Julia's raced over there and she was the first woman to actually be on a podium in Euro NASCAR in Spain at the end of the season. So, but you tell, you tell people all those things and they're quite significant and they're like, oh, it's motorsports or, you know, <laughs> so, you know, but motorsports over time has proven that it has, like the best fan fan following dedication. If you're, if you're my driver, I'm using whatever that product is right by far the most. And I think in any sport that there is out there. You've done work and really on the marketing side, but even some on the broadcast side, you mentioned Brad Doherty. I've seen Herm Edwards, Chris Paul, Miles Jack, Bill Cower. As you work with these athletes from different sports and, and especially as they get beyond just their playing days and get into all these other endeavors. Do, do you find that's invigorating in a different way than following the wins and losses as a career is emerging? I think when I was able to kind of um, expand, I say diversify. I always say I'm like a diversify now. 
So I think once I started in that, doing the NASCAR stuff, I, which I was like, oh, I don't know. I think I know this, but I don't know this, right? So I have to pretend I do or get educated really quickly. Um, and then, because Bill Cowher has been a client of ours for a long time, even when he was still with the Steelers. Um, but uh, when he went and he started working for CBS, uh, we've done his broadcasting contract, not me, but we've done his broadcasting contract for years. But when he came on, um, we had a couple of different staff changes. And, and so I ended up, I do his um, speeches, his marketing, and now he's coming out with his first book, which has been going, we're working on this conversation this morning. So, um, which is a whole different world to learn about, but I, just as I feel like I can take some of the organizational skills from tennis and how I approach different, another sport, what I learn in somebody's post career, like Bill, or um, even from Jimmy in a way, from what some things we've been working on in the last year, and how can I take those back and transfer them to tennis players, right? But I'm like so far ahead of the curve on tennis. I'm like, oh, I'm in your post-career working over here right now. So when you get there, if I'm still around, I'll tell you what to do. <laughs> but but I think it's it it's just, it's balanced things out a lot. Some days it feels like whack-a-mole, but it's balanced things out in terms of, I feel like I feel like I'm more, I'm able to use all of my tricks of the trade or use my knowledge or whatever you want to call it, you know, in order to kind of, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say make a mark, but at least make a difference, you know, in what I'm doing and, and for somebody else and, and how to help and how to keep that as part of, you know, it's, it's interesting, it goes back to the family thing. We all approach it the same way and our clients expect that same approach. It doesn't matter what sport they're in. So, and with Chris Paul, I was lucky enough to do deal for him years, a couple of years ago with Avon actually, because he was the, they became the face of their men's product and, um, for a while. And then, um, and so, you know, you just develop different relationships, you know, with, with different brands and things. And if you're able to translate it, just to transfer it over to a different division, then good on you basically. What are the challenges when you do get to that? time when a player's got to think about, do I keep going for another year or is this the end of the road? And then what is next? And, and how do they, when they've known playing tennis for 15 years and being on the road for 15 years, that transition out? Uh, I think you have to figure out a way different with each person to kind of broach the subject a little bit um, in terms of what have you thought, would you like to do different? you know, or if you're not going to travel as much, um, is it because you want to start a family? Is it because do you want to, or do you want to really be a coach? Do you want to be involved in this particular part of the sport or you've done with the sport and you want to go do something else? Do you want to be in broadcasting? Do you want to try this? We can have different things because I think I'm more of like with a realist sometimes with people, because I feel like at this some point juncture, it's almost like you have to beat them over the head a little bit. Um, just say with, so a big hammer and just say, okay, you need to start thinking, what do you want to do? Like Brian Baker's the perfect um, example of somebody who, unfortunately, you know, just because of his injuries. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, okay, well, what would you like to do? Do you want to try to do this? Do you want to, and you know, he really, I knew he, I thought for sure he'd be, you know, a great coach. Right. But he had to finally just say, 
I'm going to go try it. And he did, and he really enjoyed it. And now, you know, he's making a difference, you know, even though he had another surgery again last year, but he's making a difference at the USTA. You know, I'd say the same with Robbie. Look at, I mean, Robbie's great coach, right? Um, And, but then, you know, you just look at different people and, you know, we're so lucky that Todd found his niche, you know, when he went to the hall of fame, it's, you know, perfect for him, right? It's just, he's a gatekeeper of the sport, you know, he's a history buff. So I think, and he did that on his own, but I think, you know, it's, it's helping people having, being able to have those conversations, but I think most people, I don't know. I think most people do kind of realize when it's ready to retire, but the question is, is when, you know, when, when are you finally going to say, and I think it's more about all the changes that go on in their, their, your life, your personal life that finally caused you to say, okay, I have to, whether you're somebody who's been out on the road for a long time and you have young kids and you know, you need, they now, you know, you're become a chauffeur, right? <laughs> I mean, go from being an athlete to a chauffeur, right? Or anybody to a chauffeur, right? So um, I think, you know, you have to look at it in that regard a little bit too. So it helps if there are other outside forces that are causing those conversations to happen. This is a male dominated business. As a woman working in this industry, what do you see as, as the opportunities for growth for women? And how do you reach out and try to help bring that growth about and bring about the change to have more women be active in the space? Well, I think uh, it's interesting you say that that way. I think your wife would argue, uh, and so would I, that most, especially in the men's side of tennis, if all the women who actually worked in tennis decided to take a week off, the whole thing would stop. (laughs) It comes to a screeching halt, right? The thing is, is um, is that you... I can remember when I first started, when their agent meetings actually started to take place. Right. And I was like the only female there. Right. And I was trying not to, you trying to be super cool, but you're also really self-conscious of that fact. And God forbid you open your mouth and said something totally stupid. Um, but so I took to, on to me, I just would watch, I had for a long time, I just kind of like observed how everybody else interacted. Right. And what could I take away from it? And, you take those things and you come back and there's people who work for you in the office and whether they're like, you're trying to help push them, whether it's not particularly into your sport, but so they want to be in sports. Like I have a woman who was an intern for me. She works for the St. Louis blues now, right? She loves it. That's a total, right. That's another male dominated sport, but she was with me for one summer and she could see what it was like, or, um, you know, there's a couple other, you know, there's a couple different people where you just come back and you say, okay, do you really want to do this? Do you think that's great? But I think now, like we go to, especially an HP agents meeting, there's probably four or five. One of my colleagues, Karina Molinari and I used then were the only ones. And now there's probably several of our competitors have women who are there. They're very, they're young. Right. Um, But I think it's just a question of, I don't know, holding your, ground a little bit you know now I'm just kind of like when I see there's a lot more new uh there's over I'd say the last five years right there's a lot of new agents who've come into into men's tennis singular people who have one or two clients right who Mm -hmm. apparently I don't know some meetings I think there's 60 people there right but they don't have all that experience I'm like 
whatever. So they bring up, they ask questions, which is fine to ask questions, but they don't have the history, right? So now I just kind of some days I'm just like, well, I feel like I'm a hundred years old, but well, you know, this is actually how this happened before. Here's how we got here. So if we, if this is where we are, we can't go back to what you're suggesting. So we only have some way to go forward, right? Or I think it's just feeling like you're confident in yourself. And I just think any, and I think I'm pretty knowledgeable. I have knowledge and I, now I, you know, you're just more confident than you were when you were younger. That's just natural for anybody. Um, but I just think you have that knowledge, the more knowledge you have, the more power you have. So, and just making sure that you're, you know, you may have those moments where you just, again, you just have to be even keeled and you may figure out like thinking in your head one thing, but it has to come out of your mouth a little bit differently. So I like to think that over time, I'm, I hope that I'm fairly well-respected, right? That people, you know, think I'm do a good job that I feel like I'm, you know, I like to think I'm one of the best at what I do, but is I can't just walk around and say, Hey, I'm the gold star, right? I have to actually be able to go out there and say, and if you're going to make the sport better, we all have to get along in some manner, shape or form. Because if we don't, the sport's not better. We don't have jobs. We don't make money. End of the day. Right. I can't believe I have to say this, but I do. If you're not really strong and you don't, you're not tough and you're a female, the things that happened to people 30, 40, 50 years ago, long before I was in the workforce, still happen today. There are still plenty of people out there, men who are out there who will try to take advantage of the situation. So you either have to figure out how not to put yourself in that situation, which is really sad to say, right? Um, because it, it doesn't matter. So you, if you wanna be in a male dominated sport, you really have to be tough and you have to have that knowledge. You have to be able to walk the walk and talk the talk because without it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't matter. Then, you know, find the next thing near your next passion and go do with that because I'd love to be able to say it's fair, but it's unfortunately, I don't think it is in many places. Whether it's a man or a woman, if they're looking to get into athlete representation, not necessarily just tennis, but in general, athlete representation, what would your advice be to get yourself in the door to build that career? It's as I just had this, I did this thing for GW on Friday. It's super difficult, right? Especially now it's, it's, it's always been difficult, but it's more difficult. I think if you like sports marketing, uh, once things, hospitality gets going again, that is always in the last 10 years, it's always been the easiest entree in sports because you can see the hospitality side, the athlete side, the tournament side, you know, with the team side, whatever you happen to be in. I encourage the group I talked to on Friday uh, about thinking about companies that are actually sports sponsors because even if they have an agency, um, who's working for them, there's still always going to be somebody in house and many companies actually still have for cost cutting reasons, don't have an agency who's doing as much work anymore. So it's less expensive for them to hire people to have on staff. So that's kind of what I always try to encourage people, you know, to do, but I do think finding a way to either get involved in a tournament, if it's golf or tennis, that's always a good way in. 
I think, and, and I've, my cousin, she started uh, doing ticketing for the Nats. And then she went to Monumental Sports and worked for the Mystics, worked, did, and could have stayed there for a long time. And then next thing I know, she, because she wanted to, she lives in Baltimore, wanted to go back, didn't want to do the community more over to DC. So she was at an AD at Towson, you know, smaller school where they were doing more because of, a little bit because Title IX, doing more um, AD spots that were just more sports specific than having an A, you know, an assistant AD spot, not an, you know, an AD. So. I close every episode with the set pieces, the same half dozen questions okay. for everyone. Yes, First yes. one is what are podcasts or newsletters that you use to stay informed and keep learning? You mean other than credentials only? Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Checks in the mail. <laughs> um, uh, one of my colleagues has one called the bond. David Schwab does it. He started, he went to university of Miami at Ohio. So he, there's a lot of people from that school who are now involved in sports. So he, does a really good job of sussing those out. Um, outside of sports, I get into, I don't I have to say, I don't have, because I don't have a commute. I don't have, I, when I go out and I walk, I really don't, I kind of like to enjoy what's going on around me. Um, so I did get involved in uh, like revisionist history, which was Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. Listen to that a good bit. Um, I listened to some that uh, uh, President Biden did when he was during when he was running for office too. He had a good podcast that was going from a political side, but that's pretty much, I, I'm not that big on podcasts. Any newsletters? Um, no, I would say my newsletter, Twitter, my t uh, tweet deck is my newsletter. And I, um, because I think Twitter has become, Twitter's just news, right? It's mm -hmm. a great news source, but and I have it open on my one screen all the time. So I kind of have one eye that way, one eye another. But I have certain people that I follow. And sometimes I get the best. I pick up more new stuff before anybody else by seeing kind of like the ones that I follow. I don't follow a ton. But the ones that I do follow, um, whether it's in tennis or in politics or just in overall sports in general, writers especially, um, I just think it's become such a way to gather news and to see what's going on quicker that that, and I feel like then I like to still read the newspaper too. So that's my newsletter. I have the Washington Post sitting here, <laughs> I have real paper, right? Um, because I think uh, like I'm watching the evening news, it's large sound bites or it's opinion, right? In the paper, you're getting more facts and I want to know facts before I make a decision. Okay, so on that tweet deck, who are the most valuable follows? The posts you don't want to be missing? In tennis, for sure. John Wertheim, uh, Chris Cleary, for mm -hmm. sure. Um, Tennis.com, just because it's become, you know, with certain other ones closing, I'd say they're the, they're the, by far the best. Not that, the, you know, I think when you're, when you want to focus on like, things that are just more broad focused, you know, like obviously what's going on in each tour, having their own one, but I just think that they are, they, they bring a compilation of different news and across from all different bits and pieces and sometimes not tennis, which is good. What are a couple of books you'd recommend? Um, so in order to survive the pandemic and the insanity of which we live, I uh, stay in the nonfiction category or in the fiction category, sorry, in fiction. Um, so, and I've apparently, uh, I realized gone very British in my reading of late. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I have, I have to say there are actually, 
there was a book called The Immortalists. Have you read that? I'm not. Uh, excellent. Um, okay. And then I just finished Wolf Hall, which is, God help me, the first in a trilogy about Thomas Cromwell. The first book was exactly 600 pages and there's two more. I'm like, I need a break. I'm going to read something <laughs> else for a while. <laughs> okay. Um, and then uh, there's a couple different ones. Like they're just some mystery novels, things like that, just to take my mind off different things like that. But I would say those were the best. What would you consider your cheat code or your best life hack? My best cheat card in tennis is the fact that I keep every detail sheet for the last 10 years. So when I need to, if, if a detail, it's on my computer, if a detail sheet is not out, I can go back to last year's and figure out what I want to know. <laughs> right. If, you know, if you're looking for a particular piece of information, right. You always, it's there. You just have to always go find it. Right. I would say, um, I would say uh, using a paper clip when I have this favorite jet winter jacket and I cannot, the, the zipper is gone and, but it still has a little hole. So I have this giant paper clip, gosh forbid when I walk around <laughs> walking my dog, but I think that's a good one. Um, I think uh, there's always a, there's always a need for duct tape or sticky tape, large sticky tape, especially having dogs. So trying to get dog hair off of different things like that. Um, you know, on the road, oh my gosh, there's one of those things um, when you carry a bag and people just like, this is not a new thing. You didn't always, women don't always want to set their bags on the floor, especially if you go into a bar, right? Mm -hmm. So when they have those hooks underneath bars for you to put your purse and stuff on, but a lot of places don't. So these little new things you can get to hook onto the side of like a bar or table to hang your bag on that your bag doesn't fall off. You know, those types of, those types of easy, you know, of simple things like that. So what's your favorite sports memory as a kid? Wow. Um, I would say when just trying to think that was a tough one. I don't know. I know. Cause I went to a Catholic high school and a small, right. And we played, there were two bigger public schools and we're playing women's basketball. And I would argue that the night we beat the, rival which was literally less than a mile from our school in a women's basketball game that nobody ever thought that we would ever beat or that we won the catholic school conference that year i would say that for sure just just because of the sheer joy of being on a team right you know and just everybody somehow came together and didn't argue so it was amazing <laughs> lastly do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? I do keep my credentials. They, I have um, four dragonfly coat hooks that I purchased at uh, Restoration Hardware probably 20 some years ago. I don't know. And I'm to the point where I need a fifth one. So I easily, people walk in my office and go, whoa, that's a lot of credentials, right? So they're all literally filled. So you have to figure... I don't know. I probably have 300, 350 credentials, right? And now not just tennis. I mean, I have the ones when I went to the masters, I have, you know, my NASCAR ones are on there. I have like, you know, different, I've gone to a concert it, and, and I have a credential it, backstage. It ends up on that hook. So that's where they are. They're in my office. <laughs> Kelly, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate you sharing so much of what you do, but also how you came to be doing it uh, with us today. Thanks, Pete. I really enjoyed learning so much about the different aspects of all of Kelly's work. 
I appreciate her taking the time to have this conversation, and I appreciate you for listening. If you like what you heard, please do us a favor. Leave a rating or review wherever you are listening. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Credentials Only on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. As a reminder, you can check out show notes on credentialsonly.com. And while you're there, drop us your email so we can slide in your inbox when we have a new episode to share. Big thanks to Mike Boucher, the editor of Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production.